Imagine yourself in a courtroom. You're watching the trial and prosecution of someone that you would describe as your leader. Maybe it's a political leader, a business leader, or a religious leader. And you see them on the stand, and and they're hardly disguising a sly smile as they dismantle evidence the prosecutors bring to them. They they point out the absurdity of the accusations, uh, criticizing the character of the people bringing these charges against them, mocking their inability to produce charges that were logical or consistent. And you watch your leader pick apart the ridiculous viewpoint of the opposition while they're furiously accusing them. Your leader delivers a well-deserved tongue lashing to the other side, showing how completely ridiculous, wrong, and stupid they are. What do you feel if that's your leader? A sense of pride? If you do feel a sense of pride in that imaginative leader, it's quite probable You would not carry that pride over if you were witnessing Paul or Jesus on the stand. Mocking, ridiculing, and making the opponents feel less is remarkably absent from Jesus, who when he was on trial before Pilate was like a sheep before its shears is silent. He was led to the slaughter. And what about Paul? In our chapters for today, let's take a look at how Paul's conduct when he stood trial, kept his life in integrity with the message he proclaimed. And let's pray as we open God's word to Acts chapter 26. God, thank you for your word. And Lord, allow us to see your beauty through it as we, as we see how Paul conducted himself in light of, of the hope that he was called to. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would speak through me with clarity and that you would speak your word to our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. In Acts 26, as Paul is defending his case before King Agrippa, he begins by telling the story of how he was changed by Jesus. And so let's pick up in verse 15. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, 
most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. See, Paul was called and carried through chaos for Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Way back in Acts chapter 9, we come across Paul's initial encounter with the risen Jesus and his calling to suffer for Christ, and also to take the gospel to the Jews, Gentiles, and their kings. Jesus says it when he's speaking to Ananias. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So from the very beginning, God has been leading Paul and preparing him for this. As Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, he's going there to drop off his gift for the poor brothers and sisters there. It's actually a gift from the Gentile believers who he had been sharing the good news of Jesus with. God actually warns Paul and made it very, very clear that he would face imprisonment and hardship when he came to Jerusalem. But Paul knew that he was still called to come to Jerusalem. And the Bible actually tells us that Paul decided to go to Jerusalem in the Spirit. He was being led by God. And so he insisted, even when brothers and sisters who were also aware by the power of the Holy Spirit that hardship was coming for Paul, even when they warned him, Paul was going to go there. This is something that God had called Paul to. And so Paul was resolute. He was saying, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, God's promise for the Christian life is not one without hardship or of pain whatsoever. Like Luke's gospel reveals so clearly Jesus' words about this. He says, we are called to carry our cross daily and follow him. See, God will call us to trials. There will be hardship and trouble, and some of it certainly may be divinely appointed. And why? Because God's at work. God is at work through these trials, and he's promised never to leave or forsake his people. He won't leave us, and he won't leave Paul, even when things get really tough. God had called Paul to serve him and be a witness to what Jesus has done. And he calls us to that too. Now, our situation isn't going to be the same as Paul's. Right? He had a, an especially significant call in salvation history. But we are called somewhere to a family, a workplace, a group of people that we rub shoulders with who don't know Jesus. So where has God called you? Because wherever you're called, there will be trials. Have you ever considered that the places you spend your time and even where things are hard, you might be called by God to respond like Paul. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in fill in the blank for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to give my life for Jesus and to see others come to know him as their Lord and Savior. See, Paul was in chains now, but nothing about his call had changed. 
prior to being before King Agrippa here, Paul has had a very interesting journey. He has told a lot of people all over the, the province of Asia about Jesus Christ. He's brought the message of Jesus to people who's, who have not yet heard it. There were uproars, as Paul said, that Jesus had risen from the dead and that this was the good news for all who turned to follow him. See, Paul was called by Jesus, as every follower of Christ is called, to be a servant and witness of what you have seen and will see of me. That's what Jesus says. And as he was called, so he was carried. When I picture the image of someone carrying someone, I think of picking up my 16-month-old son and carrying him from place to place. See, as a father carrying a son, interacting and teaching him things, Paul is being carried along by the Holy Spirit to this difficult trial, and he's learning and walking with Jesus through it. As Paul goes to Jerusalem, as Dave covered last week, he knows trouble and hardship await him. But he doesn't just say, okay, might as well just let her rip, throwing caution and wise thinking to the wind. Paul actually seeks to honor his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And for the sake of unity, he agrees to undergo a purification rite with some Jewish brothers in Christ. And still, the trouble that's coming for him finds him. Some Jews in Asia find him. They stir up the crowd and they grab Paul. But Paul wasn't doing anything that would have egged this on at all. Paul had learned to be as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove which is what Jesus had called him and us to. Yet shrewd's an interesting word. Shrewd means knowing where the traps are. You see, Satan, the accuser, or the serpent, is known as shrewd in Genesis. He knows where the traps are, and he pushes people into them. But followers of Jesus are called to be shrewd, to know where the traps are, and to wisely avoid them. And Paul had done this. And so he could stand in this trial before everyone, completely innocent of the charges that were being brought against him. See, he was being carried by, along by God and living by the power of the Holy Spirit using godly wisdom. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 10 about, about situations just like what Paul's in. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. I mean, this is literally what Paul is doing here in our passage for today. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Your Father speaking through you. This is what we want when we're faced with trials. Jesus has sent Paul to this trial. And like a sheep among wolves, people are waiting to devour Paul. So what does it mean to be shrewd and wise in our world? Like to have a winsome witness in our workplace or in public. This calls for following the Holy Spirit's guiding rather than simply our rights. See, Paul uses his rights with shrewdness, but his witness with boldness. One of the things that can often cause Christians to lose the opportunity to bear witness for Jesus Christ is when they are ridiculed or mistreated, they respond back in kind. 
And this actually happened to Paul. And for a moment, he allowed his words to carry him rather than God's word. See, the Jewish high priest, Ananias, was sitting in the Sanhedrin. And when he heard Paul say, Paul got up and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. For some reason, Ananias ordered Paul be immediately slapped in the face. And Paul shoots back with an equally harsh verbal lashing. And the people there make Paul aware who he was speaking to. They go, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul had made a mistake. And Paul is not perfect. Like Jesus, who, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, the Bible says. See, Paul had retaliated, but he repented. Here's what he said. Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. See, Paul's response to the high priest wasn't wrong in the sense that he was logically incorrect. The high priest was totally out of line. It wasn't acting like he should have been at all. But Paul's words, more importantly, weren't in accord with God's word or in keeping with Jesus' example. See, when Jesus was insulted, he didn't insult people back. God's word called Paul to love his enemies. And Paul here repented. He turned from his initial reaction by reminding himself what God's word says. And and we are to be carried along by God's word as well. See, Paul needed to humble himself so that the Holy Spirit could be let loose in his trial, not his pride. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says this, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. See, Paul had to let the lion loose here. But first, he was letting the lion of God's word loose on himself. Was he living and responding in accordance with God's word? Not, am I correct in what I said, but did what I say honor God? See, Paul was not called to be a thermometer to his circumstance, rising in temperature when his group gets heated or when his opponents fight dirty with lies and ridicule, but to be a thermostat of the Holy Spirit, to follow Christ Jesus in his suffering and to act in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, Jacob Harder this week was telling me about something he heard one of his professors say. He said, the test of righteousness is not whether you will sin, but what happens next? Not whether you will sin, but what happens next. And the professor went on, the right place to go when we do is not despair, but prayer and repentance. I think that's right. To turn from justifying yourself and let God's word loose on your heart. So what is the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? How could you, rather than picking up the temperature of where you are, change it? What would this look like for you? Is there a situation in your life where you need to practice this kind of living by the power of the Holy Spirit? After this confrontation with the Sanhedrin, I love how God comes near to Paul. It says that at night, God stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What an extremely significant part for our passage and for Paul. First of all, God is carrying him, holding him, and caring for him throughout all of this. What an amazing thing. Paul is in a situation that's not good. 
And it's not going to get better as we keep reading on. And when we're in these kind of situations, we're tempted to think, God has abandoned me, or God is not pleased with me, or God does not care. But that's not the case. God does care. Jesus refers to his followers as little ones, and God as our Father, who stands next to us as he does here with Paul, carrying us through the trials of life. Like, what a comfort. Jesus reminds Paul why he's there. As you have testified about me here, I want you to keep testifying about me there. We don't always get such a clear explanation of why we're going through what we're going through and why things are so challenging. But one thing we can be sure of, we are called to testify about Jesus in whatever circumstance God brings to us. And that promises that he will always be with us. See, Paul has been called and carried by God through chaos. And it really is a chaotic mess. After a plot to kill Paul is uncovered, Paul immediately gets transferred to a place called Caesarea. Paul is going through a trial, and it's a sham trial. I mean, in Acts 24, Paul is brought before Felix. The Jews who are accusing Paul get this smooth-talking Tertullus to bring charges against him, and they're all lies. They're unsubstantiated with evidence. And so Paul's able to give a defense for himself, and he concisely refutes their claims about what he was doing by clarifying what he really was doing. He tells his story. And he moves really from defending himself to witnessing about Jesus. And I think one of the reasons why so much ink is spent on these chapters and these trials is because Paul's response to these accusations brought against him just lift up Jesus. The majority of the time, he is witnessing to the risen Jesus. He's not really defending himself. So Paul tells his story. He admits that he's a follower of the way, which means that Paul believes that Jesus is God's Messiah and that he rose from the dead. And now Paul's whole life is changed to follow and be like Jesus. So no decision gets made in this trial because Felix doesn't make a decision to help Paul, even though Paul should have been declared innocent and let free. Felix, he's a Roman and he's not a good guy. The historian Tacitus actually describes him as full of every kind of barbarity and lust. Felix had taken his wife, Drusilla, from her husband, Azizus. And Paul has, though, if we'll recall, been brought here by God to testify to these very people about Jesus. So after this hearing, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, they would come to Paul and they would hear Paul share about faith in Jesus and apparently the Holy Spirit is moving because it says that Felix is afraid and leaves Paul after Paul explains to him about the coming judgment, the urgency of responding to Christ and doing what is right in God's eyes. But Felix, it seems, wants money and worldly riches more than the eternity offered through Christ. And between his desire to receive a bribe from Paul and wanting to do the Jews a favor— he leaves Paul in prison, corruptly keeping an innocent man behind bars. Then comes Festus, who succeeded Felix. And the Jews request that Festus transfer Paul to Jerusalem because they're preparing an ambush to kill him. Like, it's chaos. But God keeps him safe as Festus says that he will hear Paul in Caesarea first. 
Now, during the hearing, Festus asks, also wishing to do the Jews a favor, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul replies this. Paul says he's in Caesar's court where he should be tried. He's not guilty of these charges, and no one has the right to hand him over to these people who are falsely accusing him. See, already Paul has been the victim of a miscarriage of justice. And so now he uses some of his rights and wisdom to secure not only his safety, but an audience with the emperor. I appeal to Caesar, he cries out. Scholar William Larkin points out here that Paul, who's been called to be a witness to Jesus, must shrewdly and courageously seize every opportunity to avoid situations that would prevent him from achieving his divinely ordained goal. I love that. Paul has a divinely ordained goal of sharing the gospel, of testifying about Jesus to, to these people all the way to Rome. We know he's been called to go to Rome by Jesus. God has stood near to him and said, this is where you're headed, Paul. Now, Festus, in order to send Paul to Rome, actually needs some, some good reason. He wants to have some evidence and a reason to send him there, and he just can't find any. So he calls up King Agrippa and Bernice, also corrupt leaders, to hear Paul's case and offer some help. And this, again, turns out to be a wonderful opportunity for Paul to seamlessly appeal to his audience to receive Jesus Christ. And really, it brings us to the passage we started with. In the midst of all the chaos around Paul, God is leading Paul to bear witness to the risen Jesus Christ. And even though on the surface it might not look like it, Paul is being led by and for Jesus Christ. So this brings us to what Paul says to King Agrippa. Listen again to the text that we've read. Paul's recounting the story of his encounter with Jesus, and he says what Jesus says to him. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, prior to saying this, Paul has gone from defending himself to witnessing to Jesus. And I don't think we can do this if our focus is on ourselves or defending our case. We can't do this if we're on trial for something other than the cause of Jesus Christ. See, Paul's focus is completely off himself. He's not really on trial here. He's kept here for other purposes, seemingly evil ones, because there is no evidence holding any condemnation against him. But he's here to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Now, could you think of yourself maybe in a situation like, you're in, the ho- you're, you're in the hospital because you're hurt. Or maybe you're falsely accused. Could you see yourself saying, I am here, not for myself, but to bear witness to Jesus Christ? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, just by nature of your calling, you are. So let's look again at our text. When King Agrippa asked Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. And maybe you're listening today and you're not following Jesus. Can I say to you like Paul that I pray to God that 
all of you were as I am. And by that I mean as a, a follower of Jesus Christ because Jesus is worth giving everything for. When I was 22 years old, I was lying in a hospital bed. And a nurse had come by and woken me up out of my sleep saying that my heart rate had dropped so significantly that they were concerned for me. And I had just had open heart surgery. And I remember as I closed my eyes, I recall the psalm that said, though my heart and flesh may fail, God is my portion and the strength of my heart forever. And I didn't know what was going to happen when I closed my eyes again, whether I would wake up here. I had so much pain at one point that I thought, wow, this is not going well. well. This is not the recovery I thought. But I had God's presence carrying me through. And you know, one day I will close my eyes and my heart will fail. I won't wake up. But I know that I'll be carried by the power of the Holy Spirit into the fullness of God's presence. And that's what drives me now, to live and tell others about Jesus Christ. You see, like Paul, I've been on the other side without Jesus. I was an enemy of God once. But God demonstrated his own love for me in this. While I was still an enemy to God, Jesus Christ died for me. He became low so that I and all who believe in him might be raised up, might be able to have a relationship with him that will last for eternity. See, Jesus came to his trial, not with a pointed finger ridiculing me or you for our unrighteousness, but with open arms of love spread out on a cross. And those arms are still open to all who will call on the name of Jesus. Even wicked murderers like Paul. What good news. And it's worth giving your life for. If I'm being honest, I know I haven't faced trials like Jesus or Paul very well. So often I've been so self-focused rather than Christ-focused that I haven't at all embraced the trial as an opportunity to witness to Jesus Christ. So how can we do this? Well, we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to offer just three implications of this text for us. The first one, embrace the trial as an opportunity to witness to Christ. Now, I'm not saying embrace the trial as a friend that you love, because we don't love trials. But they do give us opportunity. Right? When when the fruit is squeezed, the juice comes out. Likewise, trials are an opportunity for the fruit of the Spirit to be put on display, for the love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness that God makes alive in us, and which testifies to God's power in our lives to just flow out from our lives. See, what might seem evil to us might actually be used by God to bring about the saving of many people, as God did with Joseph in Genesis, and most significantly, through Jesus. See, Paul's not on trial for himself. It's all for Jesus. And Paul is becoming like Jesus in his suffering. He's not reviling in return, but rather getting low so that others might be raised to new life in Jesus. Uh, Though he is being falsely thrown around through a sham trial, he's not retreating or reviling. And I think those are two temptations that we we sometimes had when things aren't fair in life. And I faced a little bit of storm in my younger years that when I reflect on it, I wish I had acted more like Paul and more like Jesus in the face of it. I'd faced some rejection from my peers for my faith in Jesus. 
And I didn't revile them in return, though I wanted to at times, and so I'm thankful to God for that. But I did retreat a bit. I was really quiet, reserved, and silence. I had retreated a bit into myself, kind of trying to form a huddle to keep warm rather than actually reaching out into the cold to draw others into the warmth of Christ. See, Paul, with wisdom and humility, is reaching out into the world, bearing faithful witness to Jesus Christ. But all too often when we face trials, we kind of form these huddles of our crowd who agrees with us. It really becomes an unholy huddle of hatred rather than love for the lost. So is there a trial or a situation that you've been shying away from? And maybe God is calling you to be a witness, to, to pray in the midst of it? Uh, Dave shared with me a quote from Mr. T, uh, which I have to share it because it's just good. He says, we have to stop worrying about when this pandemic will end. Instead, let's, let's ask God to change us while we are in it. Don't you know God can bless you in the midst of it? Mr. T is right. God can bless us in the midst of it. And we can pray to God for him to change us and to reach the lost in the midst of trials like this pandemic and like other trials we go through. Maybe at your work, being known as a follower of Jesus could invite some ridicule or tests of character in that environment, and you just don't want that. But God has you there to be a witness for him. So what is it that you need to press into rather than retreat away from to be an open witness for God and his love? Secondly, Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the call of Christ. See, while he's in prison in Rome after this trial, Paul writes to the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the call of Christ, recognizing that they will also be facing opposition to the gospel that Paul faced. And that's a word for us today, too. We need to remember the fruits of the Spirit, to live out the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. To not look to the world around us and to, you know, be gauging what's appropriate, like a thermometer attuned to the temperature of what's acceptable in the world's eyes. No, we need to be a thermostat, a, guided by the Holy Spirit, regulated by the love of Christ, and set aflame by the Holy Spirit's call to bear witness in a world that is lost. And when you mess up, bring out God's word, like Paul did in front of his accusers. And bring your life back into accord with it. Apologize for what you do wrong. Because you will mess up and make mistakes. But we really need to not keep that from allowing us to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we need to tell of God's faithfulness. You know, I love how Paul seamlessly transitions from de defending himself to witnessing to what Jesus has done in his life. Does Jesus' love for you grip you so tightly that he's pulling out of you, pulling you out from your own troubles to witness to his love, to tell others about it. Like, will you tell the story of your salvation? Hostile or not hostile, there are opportunities for us to share about what Jesus has done in our hearts. You know, ask your friends, do you have a faith? Hey, only the Holy Spirit can change their hearts. But you and I, like Paul, can pray to God that by the power of the Holy Spirit, short time or long, that all who listen to us 
may become a follower of Jesus Christ. So when you talk to outsiders, have you ever told them the difference that Jesus makes in how you respond to things like trials? And does Jesus make that difference in your life when trials come? See, he will change your life as he did the murderous Paul. And if you trust in him, you'll know his calling and caring of you for all eternity. And there really is no greater comfort. When the trials of life come, God is with his people. And he calls us to be shrewd and innocent, without fault in a crooked world, and to tell of what Jesus has done. I'll call the worship team now as we prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup. We do this in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus suffered innocently so that we might be able to come to God. He gave his life so that his enemies could become his friends and live in his love and love one another. And so let's take this bread together and eat it, where Jesus said, this is my body. Take this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. Jesus gave his life. A new covenant promise that those who trust in him will be saved and forgiven of their sins. And he calls us to live and give our lives in light of his giving his life for us. And he'll be with us, calling and carrying us to the very end. So let's sing of what Christ has done for us as we close.